Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, this opportunity to be together in a digital community to allow us to dive into your word. Your word is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, and you, Lord, are the word made flesh. And as always, we put ourselves in a position to be reminded that when we read sacred scripture, we encounter you, the living God, our Savior, And so we pray that we would know you, we would encounter you as we watch this. We would experience your presence and your voice of comfort, encouragement, challenge, conviction to speaking uh, speaking to us and our hearts to help us to be more faithful, to follow you, to be closer to you, to fall more deeply in love with you. Bless our reading of this word and our discussion of it, our reflection upon it, and allow it to be fruitful. Allow your Holy Spirit to come upon each one of us in this moment, remove any distractions or worries or anxieties, and illuminate in our minds and hearts an openness and a readiness to receive whatever you have in store. We lay this time at your feet, and we ask that your will be done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Bible Study. So great to be with you in this fashion. Sorry that I am out of town, but I'm so glad that we can be together in this way. So if you're watching this live, please feel free to drop questions in the live chat, comments in the live chat. If you want questions answered, please make sure you also put them in the comments so we can get back to them. But if you want to be discussing with other people who are watching this live, uh, that's a great way to be interacting. And hopefully you're watching this with some other people so you can pause, discuss things as you go, and then uh, act as though it's a normal Monday night Bible study, and we'll be back together in person next week. But this week we are in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Again, that's Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. This is the gospel for this Sunday, which is the 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And it comes almost immediately after our parable from last week, of the parable of the dishonest steward. Now remember, we're in the middle section of the gospel of Luke, And we are on the way to Jerusalem, a series of parables, teachings, and encounters Jesus has as he is making his way toward the culminating climactic event of his death, crucifixion, and eventual resurrection in Jerusalem. And so this is, we're getting toward the end of this section, and these things are starting to escalate his interactions with the Pharisees and the scribes, and the level of the things that he is doing and saying are starting to get more and more climactic, anticipating that event. And so, this is a parable that is unique to the Gospel of Luke. It gives us a little bit of insight into Luke's particular um, devotion to the theme of the poor and the marginalized and how Jesus came to seek and save the lost, as he says in Luke 19.10. And it also gives us a little picture of the Jewish conception of the afterlife. And so, we're going to read this twice through. First time through, just get a picture for what's being said. You may have heard this before, uh, maybe once or twice, but it's not maybe a commonly recurring or thought of parable. 
but it's still helpful to kind of delete any previous image you have of this and try and paint this in your mind afresh for the first time. So, first time through, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who dressed in purple garments and fine linen and dined sumptuously each day. And lying at his door was a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who would gladly have eaten his fill of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Dogs even used to come and lick his sores. When the poor man died, he was carried away by angels to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And from the netherworld, where he was in torment, he raised his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am suffering torment in these flames. Abraham replied, My child, remember that you received what was good during your lifetime, while Lazarus likewise received what was bad, but now he is comforted here, whereas you are tormented. Moreover, between us and you a great chasm is established, to prevent anyone from crossing who might wish to go from our side to yours, or from your side to ours. He said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they too come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He said, Oh no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Then Abraham said, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this a second time now, and hopefully that gave you some evocative imagery or some picture in your mind. And now we want to really zero in and focus on the words and phrases as they're being read. And so I invite you to close your eyes or follow along closely and really just try and empty your mind of everything else but the words as you hear them. And if a particular word or phrase just sparks something in your mind, a stream of consciousness thought kind of out of nowhere, take that as an inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a sign that God is trying to speak to you through this passage, through that particular word or phrase. Pay attention to what that is. Begin to bring it to prayer. Reflect on it. Why this? What is the Lord trying to say to me through this? What might he be compelling me to do? How is this challenging me? Uh, and start to reflect on those things as we read this the second time through. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who dressed in purple garments and fine linen and dined sumptuously each day. And lying at his door was a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who would gladly have eaten his fill of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Dogs even used to come and lick his sores. When the poor man died, he was carried away by angels to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And from the netherworld, where he was in torment, he raised his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am suffering torment in these flames. Abraham replied, My child, remember that you received what was good during your lifetime, while Lazarus likewise received what was bad. But now he is comforted here, whereas you are tormented. 
Moreover, between us and you, a great chasm is established to prevent anyone from crossing who might wish to go from our side to yours or from your side to ours. He said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they too come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He said, Oh no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Then Abraham said, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm ready to take a few moments to, you can either pause this video and discuss with the people around you or reflect, type some things in the live chat or in the comments that stood out to you or questions that you have. Um, this live video, you can pause, you can rewind, you just can't fast forward uh, beyond where it is going in real time. So just keep note of that. But uh, we're going to keep going along and unpacking this parable line by line. So if you'd like to pause, do that now. Otherwise, we are going to uh, continue on with this parable verse by verse, verse, and then you can continue your discussion or begin it uh, after that time. So, uh, as I said, this parable is uh, unique to the Gospel of Luke, and it occurs in the series of parables that Jesus has this audience, remember, of his disciples, Pharisees and scribes, tax collectors and sinners. And this is particularly important because the disciples here are kind of in a position of instruction, whereas the Pharisees and scribes are really embodied by this rich man in the parable, and the tax collectors and sinners are really embodied by Lazarus, the one who is an outcast, the one who is not provided for, the one who is seen by the religious powers that be as those outside of the favor of God. This also really challenges the Pharisees' kind of uh, theological point of view when it comes to the Old Testament, because the Pharisees and a lot of scribes believed that if someone was rich, that was a sign of blessing from God. Kind of this, uh, we have a modern version of this called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. A lot of televangelists and big megachurches promote this, that if you believe in God and you give money or you, you know, follow a certain church or something faithfully, then God will make only good things happen in your life. And that's just not true. You know, suffering is a part of life. And in Catholicism, we have a really beautiful theology of suffering and its purpose and how we can unite it to Jesus Christ and how God is even working to bring good out of that, even though it wasn't part of his original plan for us and, and et cetera. So, but that was their idea, that if you were rich, it was because you were blessed and favored by God. And if bad things happened to you, it probably meant that you or someone in your family sinned. And think back to the book of Job. You know, Job loses everything and all of his friends are like, come on, you must have done something. Like, think about it for a second. Like, what did you do to, like, incur this wrath of God? And he's insistent, like, I didn't do anything. I I've been faithful my whole life. And so this challenges that mentality that the rich man is in the right, that the Pharisees and scribes are in the right because they've been blessed by these positions of authority and the wealth and the luxury that they enjoy because of it, and that they can no longer look to the poor, the ostracized, those who are, you know, they might just easily be able to write off as unclean or impure and say, oh, we don't have to help them, or um, at, at least we're not kicking them out, so we're doing good by them, or we're instructing them in the faith. But that's not, that goes, doesn't go far enough. It's not generous to the point of actually meeting the needs that they have. So that's really what's being challenged here. So the Pharisees would have seen this as very challenging, very convicting, probably directed like totally at them. Uh, so let's go through this line by line. There was a rich man. In the Greek, it is a certain rich man. So 
even though there is a name here of Lazarus that's given, um, we, we don't think necessarily this is about a specific story that happened. Uh, because these names also have meanings. So because there was a certain rich man, again, as we said last week, a parable isn't a recounting of real events, nor is it um, something that's immediately supposed to teach us what to do. It's a allegory or a teaching device to help uh, reveal something about God or about our faith, okay, to bring about, and yes, it can result in knowledge of things that we should do and not do, which this one particularly does, but that's not always the point of a parable, okay? So a certain rich man, we don't know his name, but he's been traditionally called Dives, D-I-V-E-S, because that's the Latin word in the Vulgate translation of the Bible for rich man or riches. So he's been traditionally called Dives. Um, in, in the most ancient Greek manuscripts, there's kind of a notation that um, his name, of the, the name of the rich man provided here, is like an abbreviated form of the a city Nineveh. And Nineveh was a corrupt city that Jonah the prophet was sent to, and it was also the capital of the Assyrian Empire uh, before Jesus. And Assyria was this massive empire that wiped out the whole northern kingdom of Israel. So the whole, all the division, all of the um, you know great Davidic kingdom that was uh, happening at the time was all crumbled as a, the result of this very oppressive and very evil empire. They're sometimes called the Nazis of the Old Testament. They did very cruel and horrific things, not just to the Jewish people, but just historically to everyone around them. So um, that can give you a sense of kind of, you know, if that's true, that that's what his name meant and how he's being characterized, this kind of very cruel, oppressive, he's in power, ignoring, or even um, gaining more power and wealth at the expense of those that he rules over or his above. Uh, that would have been a very uh, characteristic similarity to the Assyrians and to Nineveh and maybe why he is given that kind of abbreviated name. But traditionally, he's called Dives, but he's not named here in this passage directly. Uh, who dressed in purple garments and fine linen. Purple garments were very rare. rare. That's why purple tends to represent royalty because only royalty and wealthy people could afford it. Um, there's a great story. I think I've shared this at Bible study before about how purple things were made. Uh, and there was this um, uh, Tyre and Sidon, or these cities that are mentioned um, often that are north of Israel, and they're these very wealthy uh, secular commercial trade centers and seaports. And uh, Tyre, um, there was this uh, snail, a, a sea snail called the Tyrolean snail or, or sea slug. And it looks like this like thing out of a heavy metal music video. It's all spiky, it's massive. Um, and the, uh, there are certain fishermen that, or, or people who were tasked to do this, who would go out and look for these uh, sea snails in the ocean. And they were only, I think, allowed to capture a certain number because they were very rare uh, and they didn't want this kind of um, dye that they could make from them to get you know, um, massively produced. They wanted it to stay rare and luxurious. And so um, basically they would get the snails and they would, it's basically like a secretion of their bile that was mixed in order to make this purple dye. And it was so sought after because when you washed it, it didn't fade. In fact, the color brightened and became more rich and deep in its color every time you washed it. And so it was very, very rare, very expensive as a result. And um, I just love that it was, you know, because of this ancient farming of sea, sea snails, like where do we get these ideas to dye things from? Anyways, so obviously has a lot of wealth, and he dined sumptuously each day, every day. So this guy, in essence, is kind of like in violation of the Sabbath. 
Uh, not because he's not resting, but because he's resting every day. Like it says, like uh, for six days you shall labor and then rest on the seventh day. He's not even laboring. He's just, he's, he's able to dine with opulency and luxury every single day. Like that's how wealthy he is. And then it says, and lying at his door, door there is a separation. Also, the word is sometimes translated as gate, uh, was a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Now, interesting here, this is not the Lazarus that Jesus raises from the dead, because this is not a real narrative story. This is a parable. Um, but Lazarus is a Latinization of the name Eleazar, which means God heals or God helps. And the same thing would be true of Lazarus's, uh, Jesus's friend, Lazarus's name. Um, but that's where the name comes from. But this is the only person in any of Jesus's parables across all four Gospels that is named. And how interesting that is, that even in the teaching tradition of Jesus, that all of these wealthy people, the rich men that he talks about, all these people, all these characters and these stories that he tells, the only one that is named, that is given the dignity of being remembered in such a way to have a name, is the poor man, the poor man who's covered in sores. Uh, if you go back to Leviticus 13, there's a whole section about skin and scaly infections and sores and how all of them are basically seen as unclean. There was a method for trying to get yourself clean and purified to be brought back in the temple. But if you had this persistent ailment, you were ostracized from everyone. You were supposed to stay far away from people. You were supposed to shout unclean at them. You're supposed to keep your hair unkempt and your clothes tattered. You're supposed to wear like a cloth on your, uh, on your upper lip so that no matter what context people were seeing you in, you were shouting unclean. You were far away. You were tattered. They knew to stay away. Because if you got that sore or that infection, whatever it was, you could be deemed unclean, which meant you could not go to the temple, you could not make sacrifices, you were basically completely marginalized from what it meant to be a properly observant religious Jew. So everyone would look at you, especially those in power, those with religious authority, as someone who was uh, a, a, a hedonist, or not a hedonist, a heathen, someone who was uh, disobeying what was expected of them even though you have no control over the fact that you have this disease. They would have seen like, well, God gave this to you because you obviously sinned. And if you would stop sinning, that would go away and you could come back and start being part of the community and worshiping and making sacrifices again. So it's kind of like this, uh, almost like the mentality some people have about those who are poor or homeless and be like, oh, they just don't want to work or they're just lazy, you know? Um, and sure, that might be true for a small number of them, but it's a, it's a very uncharitable way of looking at people who are in need. And that was what was happening here. And yet, in the long run, Lazarus is the one who's remembered. But yet, he's covered in sores, he's ostracized, and it says, he would gladly have eaten his fill of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Now, he's obviously not sitting under the table because he can't get in this rich man's house, he can't uh, be close to anyone. And so, how does he get these scraps? Uh, this shows you how wealthy the rich man was, because if you were extremely wealthy, remember they didn't have like napkins and things like that, like disposable items like we do. And so if you were, were really wealthy, instead of just like washing your hands after a meal, you would wipe the grease and the food off your hands and off your face with a piece of bread, extra food, and you would throw it onto the floor. And that would sometimes be able to get swept out or be grabbed by someone who was in the doorway or at the gateway if it was swept out far enough for them to eat. So think about that like total degradation that this poor man is living in. Think back, you know, to two weeks ago in the story of the prodigal son, just longing to eat the carob pods that the pigs are feasting off of. Okay, so that's how destitute this man is. Um, 
Dogs even used to come and lick his sores. So these street dogs that run around, he has no defense against them. He's so weak, he's so utterly hopeless and in despair and desolation, he can do nothing for himself except rely on the charity of other people. And what's interesting here is the rich man may have thought that he was in the right here. He may have thought that he was doing enough. He may have thought like, well, I haven't told this guy to get away from my gate. I haven't banished him outside the city. I'm letting him eat my scraps. I'm not, you know, kicking him when he's down or yelling at him, you know. Uh, I'm just letting him be. And that can sometimes be the danger for us as we read the rest of this parable to really be thinking like this, this parable is not about what the rich man did. It's about what he failed to do. And we all confess that every time we go to Mass and we pray the Confidior. You know, I confess to you, Almighty God, and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts, in my words, and what I have done, and what I have failed to do. So we know directly when we've done something wrong, hopefully, and we can experience the guilt that goes with that and maybe be reconciled, but maybe we don't reflect often enough about the things we have failed to do. Because this poor man was put in this rich man's life, and the rich man had exactly what he needed to help him, and yet he didn't. And there are people whose lives you've been placed directly in by God because you have exactly what they need to know him, to provide for them spiritually, physically, whatever it may be. And if we're not looking at everyone in our lives through that lens, then we're going to miss them. Because most of us are looking at life through the lens of, what can I get? How can I achieve more? How can I hustle better? How can I get more money? How can I be more popular? How can I, you know, be seen well, do well in my work, get a promotion? We're not looking at the world through the lens of, what do I have and how can I give it? Very much in line with our gospel from this past week. Looking at what you have before you and seeing everything in your life as, I've been given this and how do I see this through the lens of, how does this help me to love and bless others? So continuing on that theme from last week. So we'll see that unfold in the consequences. But I don't want you to accidentally interpret this to think that just because he is rich, that he gets punished and goes to hell. It's not that uh, money is bad. Uh, if we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all evils. The love of money is what the rich man is guilty of, loving it so much that he refuses to part with it when he has more than enough to provide for the needs of someone just right there at his doorstep and instead squanders it on himself, just like the dishonest steward squandered the wealth of his master and the prodigal son squandered the wealth of his father. And the Pharisees are squandering uh, their position for their own benefit and not for the benefit of those they're meant to serve. Verse 22, when the poor man died, he was carried away by angels to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. So pay attention to the contrast here between what happens to these two. The poor man dies first, or is listed first, which is not a surprise to us, obviously. He's, so, he's got sores, he's living on the street, you know, he could die any day. Um, and it doesn't say that he was buried. You know, which means he probably had an undignified burial. His body wasn't treated with respect. That was seen constantly um, as a warning of what would happen to people who were dying in a state of sin all throughout the prophetic literature of the major and minor prophets, especially like in Jeremiah and Isaiah, you know, saying like, if you keep going along this line, like you're going to die out in the field, the birds will feast on your carcass, like because sin leads to death. And uh, unless we live in the freedom that God offers us, we won't experience the abundance that he's giving us of eternal life. And that affects our bodies. That affects what happens to us. And so it was kind of like a warning of a consequence. They saw Jewish people still, even to this day, who are practicing Jews, have very 
high dignity and reverence for burial rituals and treating the body with respect. And things have to be done within a certain amount of time for respect for the body. And if that isn't done, that's seen as a great sign of shame or disrespect or sin that that wasn't able to happen for you. And so the poor man doesn't have the ability to be buried properly, but he's carried away by angels to the bosom of Abraham. What happens to the rich man? The rich man also died and was buried, but he's from the netherworld where he was in torment he raised his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So notice the switch here, the upside down nature of the physical world and eternal life and what happens here. What we tend to see as prioritized here in a secular worldview means nothing in the afterlife. In fact, can lead to detrimental consequences in the afterlife if we look at, if we see earthly things in an idolatrous way or in a greedy way or in a sinful way. And so the tables have turned. And now they're in exact opposite positions. So it's beneficial here, I think, to stop and give you a, uh, first of all, to say this parable, the purpose of this parable is not to spell out a conception of the afterlife. That's not what the purpose of the parable is. The purpose of the parable is to inform the listener of the consequences of our actions and what it really means to have faith and living that out as stewards of what God has given us. And making sure that we are not neglecting the poor, but we have a preferential option for the poor, that we should be looking to them uh, and for them so that we can serve them. That's one of the seven components of Catholic social teaching is the preferential option for the poor. But um, this it does lend itself to a common uh, commentators, biblical scholars and historians, a common um, understanding of the Jewish afterlife. And so uh, that was believed to be a place that was um, collectively referred to as Sheol. And there was a side that was called the Netherworld or um, Gehenna. Um, sometimes it was collectively also all called Hades, Hades or Sheol. But there was a bad side, Gehenna or the Netherworld or the pit, you know, whatever it is, where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth and torment. And then there was a great chasm in between. And then there was a good side that was called the bosom of Abraham um, or, you know, the dwelling place of the fathers or, you know, phrases like that. I think that's close to another thing that it's called. But anyways, everyone would kind of go to this same realm, but there was this permanent separation between one side and the other. And so that was their common conception of the afterlife. There wasn't communion with God in heaven. Um, that wasn't really thought of. That was something that you could strive for, desire to be in, in communion with God. But the closest you could get, you know, to communion with God was, you know, through worship in the temple and then through being in the bosom of Abraham, through that faithfulness being lived out in your life, now being benefited from the uh, blessings that now you have in the afterlife. And there was connection to God there, obviously. It was the good side or the good place. Um, and then the bad side was obviously torment, just like hell. But there was this, this weird observable connection and interact, interactability, at least in this parable. And so we continue in verse uh, 23, from the netherworld where he was in torment, he raised his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now pay attention to what he does here. He sees that he's in torment. Lazarus is on the other side and says he cries out, Father Abraham. Doesn't cry out to Lazarus, he cries out to the person in authority, something that someone in his position would do. And then he says, have pity on me. Send Lazarus. Now that phrase there is probably the most telling in this whole passage. First of all, 
He's commanding Abraham, or requesting at least, that Abraham command Lazarus like a servant or like a slave to go and do his bidding. He still can't get over this attachment to wealth and his position of power and authority. He still sees himself, despite his torment, as better than Lazarus. But the second thing that is really shocking to me, for a variety of reasons, is that the rich man knows Lazarus' name. He says, send Lazarus. He doesn't say, send the poor man with sores. Send that man. He says, send Lazarus. He knew him. He'd had some level of interaction with him, enough to know his name, and yet he did nothing to help him. Or, in his delusion, thought that what he was doing was enough. He can have my scraps. He can be by the gate. I won't kick him out. Look how great I am. We see where that led. But still, in the afterlife, cannot let go of this idea of his position of authority, of what it means for, um, for him to have the wealth that he does. He cannot let go of that. He does not see, you know, kind of the, the, the great equalizer that death is, that he, he no longer has any of that. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So much beautiful imagery here, like, Dipping the tip of his finger like reminds me of the Old Testament where it was with the finger of God that the law was written on the stone tablets in Exodus on Mount Sinai, that there's this action of God in, in that, that act of the finger. The dipping you know, of baptism, of ritual cleansing, uh, water to cool my tongue. So many places in the Old Testament where it's like uh, watching you know, the, the uh, attacks of the tongue or being wise with the things that you do with your tongue, that the tongue can be used as a weapon. Uh, against others and how we have to be very cautious of what we say. And also that, you know, there's so many other places where, you know, the word of God is painted as like tasting sweet on my tongue. Because when you would learn the Torah in synagogue school, uh, rabbis would sometimes use honey on these stone tablets to uh, draw symbols of certain laws in the Torah. And if you were able to properly recite it, you could then lick the honey as a student. And so it was to, you know, this image of like sweet, sweet tasting law of the Lord and how he is deprived of all of that. You know, his, his maybe evil tongue has led to this torment that needs water, needs cooling. And he cannot taste the sweetness of the law because he was so disconnected from it in life that he does not have it in death. For I am suffering torment in these flames. Okay, so there is fire in this place. Fire often in scripture meaning judgment or purification. So obviously a fire of judgment, of torment, very indicative of symbols of hell, especially when hell is characterized as Gehenna, because that was a name for the valley outside of Jerusalem where all of the uh, sacrificial remains from the temple were dumped. And so it was constantly burning with embers of the remains of sacrificed animals, bones, uh, you know, it was constantly smoking, um, it was an ancient place of child sacrifice for some pagan cults. And so there was, it was just a very scary, you know, strange place, you know, like imagining like a cemetery on Halloween night covered in fog with these weird burning embers and sounds, you know, it's this kind of an image that became the nickname for the place of torment. And we can see why. Verse 25, Abraham replied, my child. So he recognizes him as a son of Israel, a son of Abraham. And in fact, all of the three major world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, see Abraham as a father. And so um, 
there is this acknowledgement of the relationship there. But then he says, remember that you received what was good during your lifetime while Lazarus likewise received what was bad. Like, remember, you had, like, everything going for you. Lazarus had nothing going for him. But now he is comforted here, whereas you are tormented. So this is not, don't misinterpret this as saying, because you had good in life, you're going to have bad in death. That's not what this means. What he's pointing out here is the a disparity between their experiences in life and the irony that Lazarus, having nothing, still had the disposition to get where he was in the bosom of Abraham, and yet the rich man who had everything, the education, the, the money, the wealth, everything he could ask for, did not have the uh, spiritual know-how or will to live a life in such a way that he could also get there, even though he had so many, so fewer obstacles to overcome that his love of money and wealth and his opulent, luxurious lifestyle got in the way. And that is why the poor are often characterized in scripture and in a lot of church documents and writings as an example to us as to how to worship God. You think of the Sermon on the Plain uh, in Luke or the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, in Luke, there's a lot here in the Sermon on the Plain. Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be satisfied. I mean, think of Lazarus there. Blessed are you who are now weeping, for you will laugh. But then it goes on, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You've gotten so much in life already. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will grieve and weep. So this upside down thing is something that Jesus has already foreshadowed earlier in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6. And we see that being played out here as an example in this parable. Verse 26, moreover, between us and you, a great chasm is established to prevent anyone from crossing. Again, that was the uh, image of the afterlife. Who might wish to go from our side to yours or from your side to ours. Notice how that he says both. And notice the character of what would be required of the person who would want to cross. Like, of course, everyone who's being tormented wants to go to the bosom of Abraham. They just don't want to be tormented anymore. But the chasm also exists for all those in the bosom of Abraham because they died by living such virtuous lives to get there, that they still have this generous heart to, if they could, would probably want to go over and minister to or help those who are being tormented. So the chasm benefits both, and it shows you a little bit more about the character of the people who end up on both sides. This also reminds me, I forgot to mention this, of um, the stories in Matthew and in Mark, where Jesus encounters, I think in Matthew it's a Canaanite woman, and Mark it's a Syrophoenician woman, uh, out in this, you know, foreign place where they're talking and she interrupts and um, says like, you know, um, even dogs wait for scraps at the table of their master, you know, talking about the fact that like, even though I'm not part of the chosen people of Israel, like I'm still waiting for the Messiah. I still have faith in you. Uh, and just that kind of scraps dogs imagery that it's the unexpected person in those two encounters in Matthew and Mark that is praised. And Jesus uses that as an example to teach his disciples. So that's in Matthew 15 and in Mark chapter 7. Also a good, a good example or parallel to these types of, um, to this story. Um, so this chasm here also shows us that heaven and hell are separate. They're separate realities. And though in this, in this story, and maybe in the Jewish conception of it, they thought there was some interactivity, they're still wholly separate realities. You cannot go from one to the other. This is also why in the Apostles' Creed we pray, um, you know, that after Jesus died, 
he descended into hell and then rose again from the dead on the third day. Um, what we're saying here is he descended into the bosom of Abraham. He descended into Sheol, into Hades, the whole, which is the name for the whole area. But he goes to the place where those who are faithful are, proclaims the gospel to them, and welcomes them up with him into the kingdom of heaven, which is now open for all to be in communion with God, because now sin no longer separates. Jesus has died for our sins. We no longer have that separation. We can be in communion and in unity with God. But those who are being tormented, who are in the netherworld, in Gehenna, they are still in hell and continue to be. And so that separation uh, that, or that, that somewhat interactability that's there in this parable or in the Jewish idea of it would no longer be the case if that was really, you know, how the Lord had set it up. Otherwise, it could just be what they thought or for the purposes of this parable. Verse 27, he said, this is the rich man saying, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send him... Lazarus, so he's still commanding him as a servant, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they too come to this place of torment. Five, anytime you see the number five, can often be a symbol for the Torah, for the law, because there's five books in the Torah. And so his five brothers could be just those who he, it could be a representation or a symbol of those he knows that do not live in the law, or who are living in this kind of old mentality that like, I can use the law to bend it to my will. So the Pharisees would have been uh, people who could have directly been pointed out by that symbol there. Or he could have literally had five brothers. And notice he also just asks for his brothers. Just kind of that natural affinity he has for family. Not neighbors, not friends, not anyone else, not his servants who are faithful to him. Doesn't care about them. Just these five brothers who are obviously not living a good life either. Otherwise, he wouldn't be as worried about them. But Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And we all do. And what I love about this is that it reminds us that we need to have a familiarity and a love for the Old Testament. You know, as Catholics, we call ourselves a Judeo-Christian religion. And so without a knowledge of the Old Testament, without a knowledge of um, the Jewish heritage and our Jewish brothers and sisters, without a knowledge of how that um, further reveals what Jesus does in the New Testament— uh, we have a, 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 a lacking understanding of our faith. Now, St. Augustine said, the new is hidden in the old and the old is revealed in the new, talking about the two Testaments. And so, you know, the Old Testament is, is called the Hebrew Bible. It's the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's three quarters of our Bible. And yet, so many people just hand out or will read these just little pocket New Testaments. And it does a disservice to Scripture and to our understanding of Scripture and our faith if we don't have an understanding of where we came from and that this is our lineage too, that we only have the ability to be saved because of the chosen people, the Jewish people, who are still the chosen people who God is going to redeem the world through. He has through Jesus and he will continue to do so until the end of time when Jesus returns. And so it's important, I think, to, to point that out. Um, <clears throat> let's see, what else here? thought there was something else I wanted to mention about that. Oh, yeah. In John chapter 5, uh, verses 45 to 47, um, Jesus says something similar to this. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who will accuse you is Moses, in whom you've placed your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So what Jesus is saying here in that passage in John 5 is that if we don't know the Old Testament, 
we can't really adequately know Jesus or understand who he is and why what he did was so incredible. So, challenge for us to make sure that we're reading those things. Also, they having Moses and the prophets, well, what did Moses and the prophets say? So here's a little summary of some things that the Pharisees should have known, the rich man should have known, and he was obviously educated and wealthy enough to have been educated to know this. So in Leviticus 19, do not mistreat aliens, widows, or orphans. Leviticus 19, leave gleanings on the end of your field so that those who need food can grab, you know, the harvest. You know, don't, don't harvest everything. Leave the borders of your fields for other people who are poor, who do not have food to take. Deuteronomy 14 and in 26, that they need to tithe, people need to tithe to support the Levites and the temple, but also to support the aliens, the orphans, and the widows. In Deuteronomy 15, um, that every seven years, debts were to be canceled and that we were to be generous to the poor. Deuteronomy 16, that um, we need to include the alien, the orphan, the widow in our celebrations. And then the prophets in Isaiah 5, that we need to observe justice in all that we do. In Micah 6, 8, similarly. Uh, in Isaiah 5, that we should not exploit workers. Jeremiah 5, that we should defend the rights of the poor. In Hosea 12, that we should not have dishonest scales or seek to, tr to mistreat or cheat anyone. And in Amos chapter 2, that we should not take advantage of those who are vulnerable. That is just a short summary of many other places in the law and the prophets that compel people like the rich man to already act, to should already know how they are to act toward the poor. And he has clearly not been doing this. Or maybe he thought in his own deluded way that he was doing it in some small way, but it just wasn't enough. This reminds me um, of that famous scene at the end of Schindler's List, where um, I believe it's Liam Neeson who plays um, the main character. He's talking about all of the things he sold to um, bribe people or to pay for uh, people to be um, to escape or be brought out of concentration camps. And he's like, looking at all he still has, like this ring, it could have been three more. This car could have been 15 people, you know, and he's, he's sobbing and weeping that like, despite everything that he did, the lives that he saved, he still recognized there was more he could have done. And I think a lot of the times we look at our own lives and we pat ourselves in the back for the little things that we do, but we don't often ask the challenging question of what more is God calling me to do? What more can I do? Not, good job, I went and served at a soup kitchen once a year, but what more am I being called to do? We all have time. We just need to make it. You know, we all have talents. We just need to cultivate them for the blessing and, and generosity of others. And we all have money to give. We just need to stop spending it on things for ourselves and sacrifice and fast or abstain from things so that we can bless other people. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to live destitute, you know, lives in despair and not enjoy things and not spend money on ourselves, but we also have to recognize if we are well off enough to not have to worry about where our next meal is coming from, we are richer than probably 90% of the entire world. And that bears a certain responsibility, and we are going to be held and judged according to that responsibility when we die. And so that's something we have to constantly be making an account for and thinking of. How can we bless others? They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. Verse 30, he said, oh no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. That word there for repent uh, is the root, the root word for it is metanoia, this radical turn from one direction to another. It's not just like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. And then I kind of keep going. It's like, no, I'm going to completely turn my life around. It's the same word that's used by Jesus at the beginning of the Gospels when he says repent and believe in the Gospel, or repent the kingdom of God is at hand, etc. 
And then finally in verse 31, then Abraham said, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. And that word rise is anaste, which is a, uh, the root word of the word that's used for Jesus when he resurrects or for the word resurrection. And it's ironic that Luke writes this at a time that's after the other Lazarus has been risen from the dead. It's after Jesus himself has risen from the dead, both of whom have come back from the dead to proclaim the fullness of what the Moses, what Moses and the prophets were all pointing to, and yet people still don't listen. So there's such truth in this that Jesus himself knew as he was giving this parable, even when I come back and I tell you, many of you are still not going to believe. You know, when Lazarus rose from the dead, in fact, I think it says this in the Gospel of John, that um, people were um, seeking his death. Not just Jesus' death, because people were starting to gain a lot of attention because now this person who was dead is back to life, but they were trying to kill Lazarus because people were being brought to faith because of him, because he had been brought back. And yet, so many Pharisees, so many scribes, so many people in authority who knew these things, who were close to them, or maybe even caused some of them to be brought about, they still do not believe in the end. And so this is a foreshadowing of the rejection that Jesus is going to face. And it's also for the time that Luke is writing after all this has happened, you know, 25 to 30 years after Jesus has risen from the dead, about the fact that still there are people who don't believe, who have heard or experienced this truth in some way and still refuse to acknowledge it. And they're going to be held accountable for that as we all will be held accountable. But this is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to tell us to have this lens of looking at everyone with dignity and with love. In fact, he says something similar to this in Luke chapter 19 in just a few short chapters from where we are now when he sees Zacchaeus the tax collector. And he says at the end of his um, um, interaction with him, uh, Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a descendant or a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. This imagery here of the rich man acknowledging Abraham as father, Abraham acknowledging him as son, and yet still there's torment because he did not do what he was called to. And yet the one who was ostracized in a few short chapters for being a tax collector is called by Jesus a descendant, a son of Abraham, and is praised because the mission of Jesus was to seek and save what was lost. Do we embody that mission? Do we try to do that in all that we are, in our week, in our ministry, you know, in, our, in, our, in our lives, our families, our friendships, whatever it is that we're involved in, whatever we do for work, whether we're in school, out in the community, in our own parishes, in our own families, are we having that mentality? Because God has placed you as the rich person in the life of someone who is physically, mentally, spiritually, or emotionally poor, and he's given you what you need to help them. Not by your own effort, but by God doing that through you and in you. Are you saying yes? Or are we going to face Jesus at our judgment and have to face the reality of all the things that we failed to do? It's one thing to just not sin. I've made this analogy many times before. There's a difference between living your life so as you don't go to hell. It's just about what I do. Or living your life in such a way that you will get to heaven. Because then you have to start asking, what am I failing to do? How can I live and love even more to strive to serve others, to be generous to them as Jesus told me, to live the life of a saint and to help them to know the love of Jesus Christ? That's all I have for you this week, so let's uh, end together in prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.
Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this day, this opportunity, or this night, wherever we are, to be convicted and challenged by your word. Help us in all that we do to glorify you, to recognize the gifts that we have been given, and to seek to love others, bless others, and serve others with them. Not to our own detriment or to our own uh, desolation or um, our own poverty, but to have a sense of detachment that these things do not even belong to us. They all came from you. They're all blessings from you. And there are people who are in our lives that we have directly been placed in their path to help serve them and bless them with the things you've given us. And so help us to think in this moment, who is one person? Who, who is a, a poor person spiritually, physically, in the midst of my life who I've been called to serve? Someone I see on the street regularly, someone I interact with who frequents the places I do who might be homeless or in need? Or is it someone who is spiritually seeking and lost who needs some direction or some encouragement or prayer? Reveal that person to us, Lord, this week and help us to act, to think about not only what we do, but what we might fail to do with what you've given us. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.